What is up, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and you're watching the third and final part of our series about the messed up origins of Sweeney Todd. And dare I say, I saved the best for last. Don't get me wrong, parts one and two are pretty great. And if you're looking for a detailed breakdown and comparison of the Sweeney Todd musical and the disturbing original story that inspired it, then you should definitely check those out before you watch this. But if you just wanna hear the truth behind the rumors that Sweeney Todd's killing spree and meat pie mischief were inspired by true events, then you've come to the right place. Now, when I first heard these claims that Sweeney Todd may have been a real person, I was pretty surprised, but I don't know why. Basically, every creative work that has at least an iota of horror in it is supposedly based on a true story but I guess it's the specificity of Sweeney's adventure that makes it seem unlikely to me. That being said, inspired by true events is about as vague as it gets. So maybe to get to the truth, we have to cast a bit wider net. I will still be addressing the hyper-specific claims that a murderous Barber Baker duo named Todd and Lovett terrorized London throughout the 16 and 1700s, but if those don't work out, I wanna know. Was there ever a murderous Barber Baker duo anywhere in the world at any point in history? The truth is gonna change the way you think of this story forever, so brace yourself for the very messed up origins of Sweeney Todd. Part three, chapter one, true crime. Or is it? So these claims that Sweeney Todd was a real fella have been floating around since his story, The String of Pearls, was released in its original weekly format in 1846. But not a single soul had any luck verifying these allegations until crime historian Peter Haining came along in the 1970s and 90s and released his two books about the true story of Sweeney Todd. He claims that Todd was born on October 26, 1756 to an impoverished family living in the East End slums. His mother was a 20-year-old silk weaver and his father was your typical abusive alcoholic. And when Todd was just 12 years old, they abandoned him, forcing him to live like a criminal just to survive. And this ultimately landed him in Newgate Prison at the age of 14. It was at Newgate Prison that Todd held his first razor blade. He was an apprentice to the barber who shaved the heads of the inmates, and after 15 years behind bars, he was finally released. The first thing he did upon his return to London was set himself up as a barber, and soon enough, he had his own establishment on the infamous Fleet Street. Fleet Street is where Todd would carry out his sinister scheme for the next 17 years. With the help of his razor blade and his secret rotating chair platform, he murdered at least 160 of his customers. Then, using the tunnels below the London streets, he delivered their still warm bods to his partner, Marjorie Lovett, who would bake them into pies. Peter Haining says that Todd's murder spree ended in 1802 when he was hanged by his neck, just like how he's executed in the original tale. But as fitting as that would be, there's basically zero evidence to support this claim, or any of his claims for that matter. Haining does cite a few historical resources, but what raises the alarm in my head is the insane level of detail he includes in his explanations while somehow managing to keep his sources as vague as possible. For example, he says that in Newgate Calendar's weekly accounts of sensational trials, they describe a man named Francis Thornhill who was commissioned to deliver a string of pearls worth 16,000 pounds to a young woman in London. But Thornhill supposedly disappeared after stopping in Todd's shop for a shave. Now, if you've seen parts one and two of this series, you know this fits the book's plot near perfectly. The calendar also supposedly says that Todd pawned the pearls after Thornhill's disappearance, which happens in the book too. But in the book, he gets 8,000 pounds for them, while in real life, he apparently got 1,000. 
quite a bit less. As additional evidence, Hanning refers to a London newspaper from the late 1700s that describes the foul odors coming out of the tunnels below St. Dunstan's Church which Todd and Lovett used for storing and transporting all the dead bods. It turns out these tunnels really do exist and even connect to these supposed locations of where Todd and Lovett's shops were. Once again, these are some pretty convincing claims, but the problem is with his citations. There's nowhere for you and I as readers or his fellow historians to follow up on them. He doesn't tell us how he got access to these 200 year old criminal reports, newspapers, and maps, or even the specific dates of the publication so we'd at least know where to look for them. And he doesn't even quote them directly. He just paraphrases what he claims to have read from them, meaning that we have to simply take him at his word and trust completely that he's accurately interpreting and transcribing the meaning of these rare and historical documents that no one has ever seen before. His work honestly reminds me a lot of another book that we've talked about on Nursery Rhymes Explained, Pop Goes the Weasel. In said book, the author confidently claims, once it becomes obvious that many nursery rhymes have been written about or evolved from particular historic events and then used as a means of passing important news around the countryside simply by word of mouth, then the research becomes a fascinating study into a bygone way of life. But nowhere in the book does he explain where this idea that nursery rhymes were used to pass on news came from. He just sort of brushes past it, saying once it becomes obvious, then he uses that completely unproven but supposedly obvious lens to analyze the nursery rhymes through. How? How exactly does it become obvious? So let's push Haining's claims aside for a second. Or forever, I don't really care. Were there any other candidates for the real life Sweeney and Lovett? It turns out, yes. We also found a few allegations online that the true Barber Baker barbarians lived in 1300s Paris. But at risk of repeating myself, there's almost exactly zero proof to support this theory though you can find a pretty convincing article over on MessyNessieChic.com. A scholarly name if there ever was one. To be honest, I found this article to be equal parts infuriating and hilarious. Like the author tells this long-winded story about a butcher barber who was in cahoots with the woman who owned the pie shop next to his business and how for three years he ground up the customers he murdered for her to cook into tasty treats. They even go so far as to say the reason the barber was caught was because a family dog was left waiting for its owner outside the shop and this led the victim's wife to go to the law and start an investigation. Sounds pretty similar to the book, right? But they do put a more gruesome twist on this story's ending. After the murderers are caught, they're burned alive to cleanse the city of their evil auras. And soon after, a bronze dog statue was erected on the street corner to honor the pup. I'll admit, I kind of want this one to be real just for the dog statue, but when I tried to look into it elsewhere, I couldn't find any record of such a monument being built nor did the author tell us where they found all this info. But wait, because it all comes together in the conclusion. The author says, as I went to investigate, I caught the eye of a young officer. Assuming I was lost and had a question about directions, I caught him off guard when I asked him about the infamous murders and if the story was true. With a surprised look and a glint in his eye, he told me that that was the legend and some of the old building remained in the depths of the garage. Ah yes, the old glint in the eye. All the proof you need, right? I'm pretty sure that's how they busted John Wayne Gacy. But it gets better, Solo fam, because there's another article over on HistoryThings.com that tells us the same story. And they actually give us a source. You want to know what it is? Their source is the Messy Nessie Chic article. 
I wish I was making that up, but God damn is it true. This entry has an even better ending though. The author says, while today these streets in the area of Paris stand as if nothing ever happened, they were once the home of something a lot more sinister. All you need to do is look a little deeper into the history books to find the real event that inspired the chilling tale. Let me repeat that. All you have to do is look a little deeper into the history books to find the real event. Kind of ironic to include that considering that no history books were used in the making of this article. Also, what history books are we talking about? There's kind of a lot of those. No, it seems to me that as much as the internet wants Sweeney Todd to be based on a real life serial killer, which is kind of fucked up by the way, there's just not enough evidence to support even the weakest hypothesis. I'll admit, it's still totally possible that an event like this happened and all the records of it have just been lost to the sands of time, but with how unique and well-publicized the event would have been, you'd think that by now, someone out there would have found a scrap of newspaper or a prison record that mentioned these monsters. Unfortunately, that just isn't the case, but it turns out that the history of Sweeney Todd goes deeper than the Penny Dreadful series. Actually, people have been talking about the Butcher Barber since before the String of Pearls was ever published. Chapter 2. The Man, the Myth, the Urban Legend You might be surprised to hear this, but we may actually know the first person to claim that Sweeney Todd was based on a real person. I want to be clear though that our resource for this information is an article from PBS that also doesn't cite its sources, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Now one thing that we know for sure is that the first stage adaptation of Sweeney Todd was created by a playwright named George Pitt, and he didn't even wait for the story's ending to be released before he adapted it. He just went ahead and wrote his own. The claim this article makes, which we couldn't find a way to prove, is that a year after the play opened, Pitt started advertising it as founded on fact. Reflexively, I want to say this is a simple case of false advertising, but in Pitt's defense, he may have really believed it. Because in the centuries before the play opened, and before the Penny Dreadful was ever written, the Sweeney Todd story had been passed around as an urban legend although he hadn't been given his name just yet. We know this because in 1844, two years before The String of Pearls debuted, Charles Dickens published his novel, Martin Chuzzlewit. And in this novel, he references, quote, those preparers of cannibalistic pastry who are represented in many country legends is doing a lively retail business in the metropolis. But it also sounds like there may have been more than one version of the legend, depending on who was telling it and where they were from. Now, wouldn't you be curious to hear how those other versions unfolded? Well, we do actually have a written record of one of them, and it was created in the 1650s, almost 200 years before Martin Chuzzlewit's publication. In the diary of a Swedish traveler named Peter Lindestrom, who was on an expedition to the Swedish settlements in America, he wrote about a story he heard while in Calais northern France. The story was about a barber who had a special hatch that he would sit his customers on top of, and when he stomped his foot, the hatch would open, dropping them into the cellar below as he simultaneously slit their throats. The entry even mentions the plot to turn his victims into pies that his partner, the baker, would sell. Only in this case, the baker was a man, and the story took place in Calais. Now I know what you're thinking. Could Lindestrom's tale be referring to the same French killers that those articles from earlier were talking about? And yeah, it very well could be. Granted, the article said the killers were in Paris, but that's an easy detail to get twisted up in the grapevine. It should be noted that Peter Lindestrom didn't bother to mention how he stumbled upon this story, so we don't know if he heard it in a pub or read it in a newspaper. 
So that sucks. But even if he does happen to be referring to the same legend that those articles were, it still doesn't change the fact that some guy's eye twinkling and history book are not valid citations. Now, I might be coming off as a grumpy goose who doesn't want people to have fun with their fan theories, but just to be clear, I am willing to entertain that parts of the Sweeney Todd story could have been based on real events. I just think it needs to be made more clear that these are theories, not proven facts. But regardless of whether or not Sweeney Todd or someone like him was real, you can't help but wonder, why was this story so popular to begin with? And what exactly have audiences been getting out of it for the past 300 years, outside of satisfying their morbid curiosity? At the fundamental level, I think it's a warning to be careful about who you trust and to always pay attention to your surroundings. Keep in contact with your loved ones as much as possible so they know what you're up to. And hey, maybe take a friend with you when you go to your new barber. But you can extrapolate different meanings from the different versions. The Penny Dreadful has those messages in it, but it also shows the consequences of unfettered greed. Greed brings misery to everyone it touches, and in the end, it doesn't even get the big payout that it caused all that misery for. The stage play is more of a cautionary tale about revenge and the consequences of taking justice into your own hands. Sweeney was so blinded with rage that he murdered the woman that he thought he needed to avenge. I think another reason that The String of Pearls was so popular with audiences after finally being put into print was because of the time period. London was in the thick of its industrialization, with tons of new residents from out in the country moving into the city to work in the factories. People were more stacked on top of each other than ever, and many went from knowing the farmers and butchers that supplied their food personally to being unsure of where their food came from. This fear of transactional anonymity that was made possible by the dense populations was reflected in the story about the barber and baker, and so it resonated with many of the people reading it, which were mostly the aforementioned newcomers to London, making Todd's choice of victims, lone travelers and migrants, people isolated or estranged from their family and friends, even more terrifying. It showed the readers just how vulnerable they were to becoming nameless murder victims who could disappear without a trace. And on that lighthearted note, our annual Spoopathon comes to a close. Thanks a lot for watching, especially if you tuned in for every episode. I'll admit this went on about two weeks longer than I expected, but I had fun and learned a lot. And honestly, I kind of want to lean into the spoopier topics going forward. Let me know if you like that idea by hitting me up on Twitter or Instagram. My handles are at John Solo and at Messed Up Origins. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and want to help the podcast grow, make sure you slit the throats of those five star and follow buttons. I'll speak with you all again next Friday when I revisit a certain Disney film that I covered in the early days of the show. Until then, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.